Hello, everybody, and welcome to the New Books in Middle Eastern Studies. I'm John Gazvinian, host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking to Reza Azir Ibrahimi about his new book, The Emergence of Iranian Nationalism, Race and the Politics of Dislocation. Reza Azir Ibrahimi is Senior Lecturer at King's College London. That's the equivalent of Associate Professor here in the United States. Reza Azir Ibrahimi, welcome to the program. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you for inviting me, John, and I'm very pleased to be here. It's a pleasure. So tell us a bit more about this uh, book, The Emergence of Iranian Nationalism, Race and the Politics of Dislocation. Can you give us a bit of a feeling for sort of what you're, you were hoping to accomplish with this book and what the sort of general argument is? Right. So the book really focuses on a uh, number of uh, ideas, if you will, or myths of a uh, nationalist character uh, that are very common in uh, among Iranians, both uh, in the country and especially within the diaspora. So uh, if you have ever uh, come across Iranians, uh, these ideas would, would be very familiar to you. One of them, the first one, is uh, what I call a, a certain infatuation with uh, the pre-Islamic past of uh, Iran, particularly the Achaemenid past, um, and uh, a great deal of uh, reverence for Cyrus the Great, the founder of the said uh, uh, Achaemenid past. And this uh, pre-Islamic... And just to clarify, for just, sorry, just to clarify for listeners who may not be familiar with that, term, the Achaemenid, of course, the first uh, of the great Persian dynasties of the Persian Empire, right? Sort of 6th century... BC. Yes, exactly. And this period is uh, really considered as uh, the golden age of uh, the nation's history and also the age uh, where its essence essentially uh, uh, was formed. So its age, uh, its stage of purity, uh, if you will. This is the first idea. Um, the second um, idea is um, um, what I dare call a very profound uh, dislike of um, of Arabs as a people, uh, and a great deal of hostility towards um, uh, anything that is associated, uh, uh, quite arbitrarily sometimes, with uh, with Arabs or Arabness. So that includes uh, uh, Arabic loan words uh, uh, used uh, in Persian. As you know, forty percent of the language is made of uh, words that are common rather than words of uh, uh, Arabic origin. A majority, of, a majority of them are of Arabic origin. And, of course, Islam and uh, a, a number of other practices, uh, uh, if you will. Um, and thirdly, there is this uh, very lively uh, discourse of the Aryan race, which is really at the uh, heart of Iranian identity politics and has been throughout the 20th century um, as much in the, uh, the official discourse of the Pahlavi state than uh, in uh, the, uh, uh, if you're in the development of national identity uh, as developed by, by intellectuals uh, and particularly nationalist uh, uh, intellectuals. It is an idea that is still lively today, so it has survived the 1979 revolution. So this is uh, a cluster of ideas which at some point in my life, I, I came to question. Initially, I, 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 I would subscribe to them because I, I grew up in a social environment that uh, very much uh, upheld uh, these ideas um, as I grew up in, uh, in Iran in the, in the 1980s. Uh, I'm not referring to my family particularly, who are, uh, are generally not very interested in, in, in these issues, but uh, the, the extended uh, social uh, environment in which uh, in which I grew up. However, uh, gradually, <clears throat> when um, I, w with some historical uh, baggage, if you will, uh, under my or, or baggage of historical uh, 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 knowledge uh, under my belt, uh, I came to realize uh, the you know the, the the extent of the modernity of of the nation state and the modernity of uh, racial discourses and racial thought generally. And so uh, this and my mixed background in, in, in the sense of uh, my, my mixed upbringing, because I partly grew up in, in, in Switzerland, um, and 
some knowledge of, of, of Arabs, I mean, sufficient, sufficient knowledge of, of Arab individuals uh, and Arab countries to, you know, uh, to question some of the, the, the myths uh, about Arabs. Anyway, all of this put uh, a certain distance between me and these ideas. So I came to a point whereby I could start to gradually question these myths and wonder uh, when and how they came about. And uh, this led to my, uh, my uh, doctoral uh, dissertation at the uh, University of Oxford under the supervision of uh, uh, Professor Homer Katuzian, and uh, where I, I tried to do exactly that. So, you know, trace the origins of these ideas, try to understand who uh, uttered them for the first time, what were the templates that were used, and most importantly, what were the strategies that were pursued in uh, uh, in, de- in developing this uh, these ideas, and these ideas, I came to refer to them as uh, part of uh, what I call dislocative nationalism. So, w- what do I mean <clears throat> by dislocative nationalism? Um, so, I-, I like to point out generally that uh, I don't use dislocation in the sense of geographic dislocation. You know, so for instance, colleagues colleagues in migration studies or geography use the concept of dislocation to refer to the experience of uh, migrants particularly. Um, My dislocation, the dislocation that I focus on, is uh, an imaginary operation. It takes place in the realm of the imagination, whereby, thanks to the theory of the Aryan race, Iran is dislodged from uh, its empirical reality. Its empirical reality being uh, uh, you know, uh, a land, uh, a, a land with uh, a diverse population, finding itself in the Middle East, uh, and largely Islamic. So I'm not claiming that uh, uh, you know Iran is essentially or fundamentally uh, Islamic. What I am claiming is that when you argue that Iran and Islam are completely dissociated uh, and have nothing to do with each other. Uh, this is something that needs to be problematized in view of the fact that you know Iran and Islam have something to do with each other. I mean, it's a it's a it's a, it's a very basic premise that I use to to uh, uh, to question this. So uh, this is uh, this is pretty much the uh, you know a summary or an over- overview of the uh, the genesis uh, of uh, of this book. Sure. Yes, and it's I think a very important and, and interesting. Um, uh, perspective that you're taking. I think all of us who have grown up in sort of Iranian backgrounds uh, in the 20th century have in some ways internalized or absorbed some of these ideas, right? I mean, this sort of psychological dislocation that you're talking about, uh, this idea that somehow this is a a nation separate from its uh, surroundings. So I think it's it's very interesting to see someone kind of grappling with these ideas. Um I wonder if you can um, kind of break some of this down for us a little bit more now and sort of take us through the book a little bit. Um, so you talk about this idea of dislocative nationalism, right? This kind of psychological dislocation um, that uh, that Iranians so often seem to like to, to posit. Um, you begin with sort of, uh, as you would at the beginning, right? Sort of where, where does this, all of this come from? And your first sort of opening chapter is called The Paleontology of Iranian Nationalism. Um, which basically locates the origins of this uh, dislocative nationalism in what you describe as a traumatic encounter with Europe in the 19th century. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about that and sort of why you feel this phenomenon begins there? Yes, yeah, so one of so there, there are several arguments in this first chapter. One is that so you know in terms of nationalism theory, I am uh, a modernist, but I like to believe that I'm a moderate. Uh, modernist, and uh, so for those of uh, uh, of you who are who are acquainted with nationalism theory, uh, I'm somewhere between uh, uh, Benedict Anderson and Anthony Smith. Many would think that the two positions are not uh, conciliable, but I actually see a conciliation that is possible. So my belief is that there is a pre-modern idea of Iran, which can be traced, uh, uh, you know, to to pre-Islamic times. There have been uh, territorial states that bore the name of Iran, particularly the Sasanian state, which was the last state before the advent of Islam uh, to Iran. Uh, 
But my claim is that this idea throughout the pre-modern age is very fluid and is flexible. It refers to a range of uh, 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 a range of ideas of territory and geography and culture uh, 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 and uh, and also a state or a, a number of bureaucratic practices. Uh, but it's fluid; it's shifting constantly. And the reason for this shift is that the idea of Iran has not been frozen by. A, uh, uh, um, a nationalist ideology. That's the difference. So the idea is there. There is an ethne in the sense of uh, uh, Anthony Smith, so repository of uh, memories. There is a language, there are practices, and there is a vague idea of Iran. But it is very far from being what it is today. This idea has been extensively engineered by the nationalist authors that I uh, discuss. And uh, therefore, the modern idea of the Iranian nation is completely different uh, from uh, what this ethne used to be. Moreover, there are other geocultural ideas that compete with Iran throughout the pre-modern uh, period. And uh, I, I like to refer to Khorasan often or Araq Ajam. Uh, uh, for instance. So these are also geocultural ideas and they uh, occur uh, in, in numerous sources, sometimes more often than, than Iran. So then the question is, what happens? What happens for this sort of like uh, vague and flexible uh, and uh, uh, shifting ideas of Iran to become what it is today, which is a, a very clear idea of a modern uh, nation state? So there is a traumatic encounter with with Europe, primarily a very traumatic series of defeats uh, in the hands of the Russian Empire. The Russian Empire in the early 19th century is uh, very aggressive, very aggressively uh, expanding southwards, uh, which brings it into conflict with uh, with the Rajar states. Um, the uh, Rudy uh, Matei, my, my colleague from uh, Delaware University, uh, has uh, done very interesting research on pre-modern perceptions of Russians among the Iranian elite. And you realize the extent to which the Iranian elite in the 16th, 17th, 18th century uh, despised, I hate to say, the Russians that were seen as uh, uncouth and Bibleists, etc. And here we are in the early 19th century. The Russians are standing at the borders of the uh, empire with a modern standing army, uh, which, uh, as we advance into the 19th century, comes gradually to be seen as impregnable. And uh, uh, impregnable by the tribal forces of the Rajar, uh, uh, the Rajar state. And um, uh, the defeats that were inflicted on the Rajar state and the large uh, uh, territories that were annexed by Russia bring about a, uh, uh, a very painful process of self-questioning. Uh, you know, so these, these people, the, the Rajar elite, had very high ideas about, uh, of themselves. They, they thought very highly of themselves. And they could not understand uh, why the modern Russian army could defeat them. And uh, uh, it was a wake-up call, if you will. They were dragged out of their, their, their self-contented uh, torpor. Is it is it sorry to interrupt? Is it do you say it's similar to a similar moment to the uh, defeat, uh, so the victory of Napoleon? So you know, it, it's a long history, right? The uh, the uh, the encounter of Middle Easterners, uh, or what today we refer to as Middle Easterners, with uh, with European imperialism. Uh, it happened in, in in very different ways. Overall, there is a schema that is uh, common across the board, uh, in the sense that there is first a sense, and this is very pr prominent in the Ottoman Empire uh, as well, a very strong sense of military deficiency. Um, you know, Europe is before everything else in this period at the first moment of encounter a very powerful military. Uh, uh, a challenge that needs to be met. And so the first programs of what you could call modernization that are devised uh, in this period uh, by the Ottomans, uh, to some extent by the Egyptians as well earlier, but by the Rajar state in the early 19th century are programs of military modernization. 
And what happens is that uh, the subjects of the Rajar state, well, the, uh, the, 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 the elites, in fact, of the Rajar state, start um, you know, over time to acquire a, a much better idea of what explains the strength of uh, a modern army with a central command, etc. In other terms, they start to have a better idea or, 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 a, or a more precise interpretation of what European modernity is. And these people become what we refer to as uh, the uh, Iranian modernists. So these are people that were devise programs of reform to reform the state uh, in order to meet the challenge of European imperialism as uh, exemplified by first the Russian Empire, but later uh, in the 19th century also by the British Empire, which defeats uh, uh, um, uh, Iranian tribal forces uh, at Herat in today's um, uh, Afghanistan. So <clears throat> what I'm, I'm trying to get at is that you have in the 19th century this modernist uh, uh, movement. And I always emphasize that this modernist movement needs to be seen as a pragmatic intellectual movement. These people want to reform the state primarily, and you know they meet in their circles and they devise programs of reform. Programs of reform that will lead ultimately in the early 20th century to the constitutional revolution. However, in the 19th century, um, so if you are sitting uh, in uh, Tehran in the 1860s and you look around you, you will tend to believe that the modernist movement has so far failed to bring about any change uh, uh, in how the state functions. Uh, and uh, uh, Iran has continued throughout the, the previous decades to be defeated on the, battle, on the battlefield. So there is a, um, um, there is a sense of uh, disillusionment uh, with modernism, which leads one intellectual, uh, uh, Fatali, Mirza Fatali Akhundzadeh, also called Akhundov in, in, in Soviet sources, I mean Russian and, and Soviet sources, um, to uh, devise a new ideology, which is very different, and it's, uh, it's dislocative nationalism. So the, 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 the origins of dislocative nationalism uh, go back to a uh, fatigue with uh, uh, modernism. Um, and Ahun Zadeh, who is at the time uh, lives in the uh, in the Russian Empire at Tbilisi, which is the seat of the viceroyalty of the Russian Empire in the Caucasus, and he serves as the translator of the viceroy of Russia throughout his for for more than thirty years throughout his career. So throughout his career, he served the Russian state. But he's looking at Iran, which he considers as his homeland, from afar, sheltered from the censorship of the Rajar state and the ulama or the clergy, and he um, he comes up with uh, the ideas that I referred at the very beginning of uh, of this interview. You know the the, the pre Islamic golden age, uh, you know the scapegoating of Arabs for Iran's uh, shortcomings. So he he devises these ideas pretty much exactly as they are still formulated today. So you know in more than 160 years, this ideology has been extremely stable which is only testimony to uh, its uh, success in, uh, in addressing some of the, perhaps the psychological needs of uh, those that subscribe to it. So, um, and, and the, I, so uh, just to finish on how this all happened, um, the ideas themselves or, or some of the uh, crypto ideas or sorry or the, the 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 initial iterations and formulations that will be used to uh, as the building blocks of dislocative nationalism are to be found in european scholarship on the orient uh, um, so you know, it's european orientalists primarily that considered the pre-islamic past as better than what came later, because of their profound hostility towards uh, Islam, which you can see across the board, with a few uh, uh, exceptions. Um, the idea of the Aryan race opposed to the Semitic race, you know, the, the Aryan race of which the Iranians in this uh, uh, discourse become the, the, the representatives, and the Semitic race of which the Arabs become the representative. This idea of the opposition between the two is, is a European idea that emerges in 
uh, in uh, Semitic philo- in comparative philology first, and then in racial thoughts, and then uh, uh, that you find the traces of in in Orientalism. So what Achunzade does is that he takes some of these ideas, but he doesn't sort of like uh, um, adopt them wholesale. He hybridizes them. He selects some ideas, distorts some of them, leaves other ideas out. He really, you know, he he's like a cook in his kitchen. He he takes various ingredients that he mixes up. And 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 the, the end result is dislocative nationalism. So here here I tend to differ a little bit from Mustafa Vaziri, for whom I have a great deal of respect, who was the first in the 1990s to analyze the nationalist discourse in Iran. Uh, he seems to suggest that the modern idea of Iran is entirely an invention of the Orientalists. And so what I believe he misses out on is this process of hybridization, which is very very complex, and which Ahunzadeh uh, launches. And just to finish on that note, there's a second thinker who is very important. So, you know, the ideas of Ahunzadeh live under the skin of the uh, Iranian intelligentsia. They don't immediately catch on, if you will. And they might have sunk into oblivion if it wasn't for Mirza Khan Kermani, who 30 years later, in the 1890s, uh, not only retrieves them, and pretty much paraphrases them largely. Uh, uh, but he does two important things. One is to add a much stronger racial element to the discourse, because Kermani is far more aware of modern European racial thought. He's the first to use the term uh, Aryan race in any Persian, uh, in any source in Persian, and he transliterates it from French. Um, uh, uh, he seems very well aware of some social Darwinist uh, ideas. So he, he adds, he, he strengthens the racial element in dislocative nationalism. And the second important thing that he does is to disseminate uh, the ideas of Ahunzadeh. Uh, so this is where we stand at the end of the 19th century. Yeah, and you have these two figures, Ahunzadeh uh, yeah, and uh, Kermani that I think um, outlined very nicely. Um, uh, Kermani, in particular, has some remarkably colourful attitudes, shall we say, towards Arabs, right? Some very, some really hatred. I mean, there's no other way to describe it, right? I mean, can you? I mean, you have some incredible quotes in your book, I and mean, can you give us a bit of a flavour for sort of some of the things that were beginning to be said about Arabs now, particularly in the hands of Kermani at this point? Yes. Yeah, so I, I don't, I don't have the quotations sure, no, no, no. Uh, before. But yeah, he, he calls them bare ass, vagabonds, he spits on them, etc. And you have, I mean, such passages, uh, you know, go on for pages and pages. Um, and uh, the, the, the hostility and the hatred is very, 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 very deep and very strong. The reason is that, you know, for these thinkers, the dilemma of uh, uh, Iran in the 19th century is its backwardness. What, or what they referred to as backwardness vis-a-vis uh, European states, vis-a-vis you know, the British and the Russians that are the two states that Iranians are most familiar with in the 19th century. And the way they explain that for themselves is by scapegoating the, uh, the, 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 the Arabs. Uh, so the Arabs become the scapegoats that uh, are to be blamed for pretty much all of Iranian shortcomings. I mean, Kermani states it, and I quote him in my book, says very clearly, says any Iranian shortcoming can be traced to the, the, the legacy of the, of the Arabs. Um, and I do take... And we hear so much of this even still today, don't oh, we? I mean, these are such absolutely. familiar themes to anyone who's listened to any conversations with Iranians at any point. Yes, yes, yes. So there were first um, after the revolution, uh, towards the late eighties and early nineties, you start to have the emergence of this uh, discourse, this uh, this uh, secular oppositional discourse to the Islamic Republic, which sees the advent of the Islamic Republic as again something that can be traced uh, to the Arabs or to the advent of uh, Islam to Iran. You know, it's very common to hear that the, uh, the, the clerics that run the Islamic Republic are Arab Zadeh, or of Arab descent, and that they are continuing, you know, the Arabs' atemporal project of trying to stamp out uh, Iran's uh, separate uh, identity. And today, with uh, the quasi-Cold War between 
uh, Iran and Saudi Arabia. Uh, this it, it, it has given given this uh, this ideology a, a new lease uh, of life. So you know the, the, the opposition between some Arab states and Iran is not seen in terms of the geopolitics of the region today. They are seen as some sort of like atemporal racial hostility of the two people, completely reified uh, throughout history. And today's, today, today's uh, 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 proxy war between Saudi Arabia and Iran being just the last manifestation uh, 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 of it. Yeah. So before we get too far ahead of ourselves, though, I do want to break down, because you break this down very nicely. Um, you know, what this dislocative nationalism, the forms that it begins to take after Ahunzadeh and Kermani and sort of how it gets developed in the early 20th century. And you describe basically three features of uh, dislocative nationalism, which you gestured towards at the beginning of, the, of the, our conversation as well. Broadly speaking, a sort of glorification of anything pre-Islamic, right? Um, first of all. Secondly, a, a real hatred, an intense hatred of, of Arabs and, and kind of Arab influence uh, that's seen as a form of pollution, uh, really of the sort of pure Iranian soul. Uh, and then thirdly, um, uh, a real an, an importing of European kind of racialized ideas, which you know you say are hybridized correctly, but um, you know attempts to emulate Europe, a belief that Iran is somehow a European country, sort of dislocated, etc. So I, I'd like to just go through each of these in turn, if we can. I mean, um, so you have in in chapter three, you call it uh, a pre-Islamic Iran and archaistic frenzy. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about this archaistic frenzy uh, for uh, sort of pre-Islamic Iran in the early 20th century? So if you go back to the uh, foundational texts of uh, Ahunzadeh or Kermani, um, the representation of pre-Islamic Iran there is one of a, a utopian society. It's a Garden of Eden of sorts, which is devoid of any of the ills of modern life. There is no poverty, there is no corruption, there is no injustice. Uh, it is pretty much a, a, a you know, sort of epiphany of the Garden uh, of Eden with kings that are uh, benevolent and, uh, and so on and so forth. Um, this pre-Islamic Iran is contrasted with contemporary Iran, which is seen as entirely despotic and uh, superstitious and cruel as a as a as a society. Um, what I point out is that the veneration of the pre-Islamic past uh, is not established before the te the texts of uh, uh, at least not in in texts in Persian before before Ahunzade. Uh, the Shahnameh literature has been referred to, but I, I discussed that at length. Uh, uh, in my book, I think that the Shahnameh literature has been very much distorted, uh, sometimes out of recognition, to support uh, uh, nationalist, uh, dislocative nationalist um, uh, claims. You have examples in uh, Zoroastrian texts. Occasionally, uh, you know, you have uh, uh, well in Zoroastrian texts certainly, but in, in other uh, uh, texts as well, uh, you know, some longing for this period, but generally. Before Ahunzadeh, the idea that this period was a period of national uh, purity and perfection, which comes to an end as a result of Islam, leading to an you know, altogether negative experience of Islamic Iran, is, is very modern. And um, I tried to find the traces of uh, uh, the first traces of this, and it, it brought me, of course, to, to Orientalism and uh, other. European uh, uh, scholarship. So I think there are, two, there are two elements here in European scholarship that are important in explaining the place of um, uh, the pre-Islamic Iran in, in this literature. One is uh, what I already referred to earlier, is a distaste for Islam, a distaste for Islam and an infatuation with Zoroastrianism simply because Zoroastrianism is perceived as something that was there before Islam and supplanted by, by Islam. Therefore, it must have been good. You know, it's as, it doesn't go beyond that. So Montesquieu already in the 18th century, and, but also Voltaire and Diderot have very positive ideas about, uh, are, are, are very well disposed towards Zoroastrianism. They, they, they know next to nothing about it. And in fact, when 
the Avesta, the, the collection of Zoroastrian sacred texts, is translated for the first time in French in a European language by Anquetil Duperon in the 1760s, they uh, react very negatively to this Avesta uh, because it doesn't quite fit into what they imagined uh, Zoroastrianism uh, uh, to be. So this is one element. There is already an infatuation with Zoroastrianism and all things pre-Islamic in European text, even before the 19th century. And then there is uh, you know, a projection of the frames of thought of humanist classicism onto Iran. So what do I mean by that? I mean that most or Orientalists in the 18th and 19th century were classicists. Okay? So they were Latinists, or they worked on ancient Greece, uh, and then they came to Persia, if you will, in a scholarly uh, sense, through uh, ancient Rome and ancient Greece and, and, and antiquity. So in the, in the classical humanist reading that you can find, for instance, in Edward Gibbon's The Fall of the Roman Empire, antiquity is the age of science and great achievements, right? And then it's followed by the Dark Ages, which is, as Gibbon used to refer to it, the triumph of barbarism and religion. So you have a non-religious past that was amazing, and then religion comes and destroys it and inhibits you know, scientific advancement. And this is... a. a this reading of European history is projected uncritically onto Iran. And so that explains the belief that the pre-Islamic period was witness to all sorts of scientific advancements and that the Islamic period was altogether like the Dark Ages of Europe. Something that completely runs in the face of uh, the facts of history that were already available in the 18th and 19th century. So, you know, all the uh, scientific findings uh, of uh, inhabitants of the Iranian plateau that were passed down were those by 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 you know Muslim scholars, and if we and if we if we we we, we name three of them, I always like to name uh, Khorazmi, to whom we owe uh, the words algebra and algorithm, a term that is very en vogue today. Uh, Razi, which was uh, recently referred to as the greatest clinician of all times. And Avicenna, whose uh, canon of medicine was uh, taught in, in, in European universities uh, well into the, the 17th century. Um, so uh, uh, so the, the second aspect of you know, Golden Age archaism or, or this, this penchant for the pre-Islamic past is a projection of a typical humanist classicist reading of European history onto Iran, which was then adopted by uh, the uh, dislocative nationalists because it allowed them to elevate the past of Iran to uh, uh, the level of, 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 of Europe. You know, it, it was a very flexible palimpsest uh, uh, because knowledge was very sparse on the pre-Islamic past uh, at the time. You could make whatever you wanted out of it. So they, they turned it into this uh, highly progressive, advanced, society which is really our essence which then comes mm -hmm. to an end with islam right and then related to this so the second feature of this is this intense hatred of all things arab basically and then you have this wonderfully titled chapter called of lizard eaters and invasions the import of european racial thought um and you describe uh, and you have this wonderful line if you don't mind i'll just i'll just read here you say that the figure of the arab serves a purpose similar to that of a voodoo doll. Uh, by cursing it, the nationalist imagination relieves the pain of Iran's decline into backwardness. Uh, can you tell us a bit more about this kind of, how this sort of hatred of all things Arab and Semitic uh, sort of plays into all this, this sort of second feature of dislocative nationalism? Yes, yeah, so, so there are several things. Um, so, you know, this, this wonderful uh, pre-Islamic past, you know, which is uh, uh, pretty much a paradise, um, it begs the question, uh, what happens? So why is Iran today, today so uh, um, uh, despotic and, and cruel and, and superstitious? And so the, uh, the answer that is provided is uh, simple, and I think that's why it's so attractive and it's comfortable as well. Because it, blame, it lays the blame on the doorstep of an other, uh, uh, the other of dislocative nationalism, which is 
the Arabs. So the moment of the advent of Islam to Iran, I mean, I shouldn't even call it a moment because it was a very gradual process. But in the dislocative nationalist mind, it's a moment. And it's not only a moment, it's a teleological moment. It's a moment that makes sense of anything that precedes it and anything that that uh, 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 follows it. It's, uh, it's, uh, it's a rupture in uh, Iranian history. It is a moment, and you cannot make sense of that narrative if you don't understand European racial thought because it is applied to this moment. So what happens is that previously you have a pure race, a pure civilization, Aryan, pre-Islamic uh, Iran. And the, what is referred to in dislocative nationalist literature as the Arab invasion is in fact the penetration of this purity by, by Semites, by Semitic filth, as it used to be called in, in the 19th century. So you have here a case of racial mixing, which dislocative nationalists, concerned as they are with ideas, 19th century European ideas of racial purity, cannot reconcile themselves uh, with. Uh, you know, if their, this, their contempt for the Islamic period of Iranian history is not due to the fact that this period has fewer achievements to boast about or that, you know, had fewer states that are as expansive as earlier. No, it's simply because in their minds, a case of, inter, of interracial mixing, uh, uh, it represents a case of interracial mixing. So again, if you go back to the uh, European templates of these ideas, this is a very, very prominent idea in 19th century uh, European racial thought. I think the best uh, representative of it is Arthur de Gobineau, who uh, was uh, uh, not a scholar himself, but he was quite influential, let's put it this way, uh, and very influential as far as uh, narratives of Iranian history are concerned, because he was very interested in Iran. He lived there for three years as French ambassador to the Rajar state in the 1850s and, and wrote extensively uh, about Iran. Gobineau believed that only a pure race, I'm, I'm simplifying Gobineau's thought uh, here for our purpose, it's a bit more complex than that, but essentially, you know, only a pure race can produce a great civilization. When races are mixed, it leads to degeneration, right? So the moment, so Islamic Iran is a degenerate, degenerated Iran because it has been mixed with, uh, uh, with, uh, with Semitic culture, Semitic practices. And this, is, this explains why what is referred to as the Arab invasion is seen in dislocative nationalist literature down to this day, down to this very day as we are speaking, as not a military event. It is not, uh, you know, it's not about religion even. It's not about a empire which aims to expand its tax base which is the model of practically, I mean, most empires, practically all of them, uh, in, 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 in human history. You know, empires expand in order to tax more people, in order to put more money into their coffers, and then expand more. No, here it's entirely cultural. There is this reified Arab other, which invades a reified us Iranians, uh, not to tax us or anything, but because they are inherently hateful of us. They inherently want to destroy our separate language, uh, etc. This is why Arabic loanwords are seen as the success of the Arabs. This is why dislocative nationalism, ever since the 1860s, has advocated the elimination of Arabic loanwords in the Persian language, something that has been attempted uh, at, in, in some historical junctures, but with very muted um, results uh, in, the, in, the, in the 20th century. Um, so uh, this, is, uh, uh, this, is, this is the reason why uh, uh, this hatred of uh, uh, Arabs is so deeply entrenched in, uh, in, uh, in uh, dislocative nationalism. Um, I'm just going to uh, give you one, one historical example, one, uh, one uh, quotation. So uh, in the early Pahlavi state, uh, 
you have a chap called uh, CRC Ali Akbar CRC, I think uh, I forgot. I'm blanking on his first name. He was a he was a statesman. He was an early Pahlavi statesman in the uh, late 1920s, early 1930s, and he was also rector of the University of Tehran for a while. This chap wrote a PhD uh, at the University of uh, La Sorbonne in Paris. And his uh, dissertation was about how to modernize Iran. And I have to read the last sentence of this PhD thesis when he says, quote, in order to clear up, no, in order to modernize Iran, one must clear up the Persian soul from this impurity. This impurity is, of course, a reference to what he believes is the legacy of Arabs, which is pretty much everything from the way Iranians talk to the way Iranians speak. Uh, to their religious practices. So clear up the Persian soul from this impurity and allow it to shine from the sparkle peculiar to the Aryan genius. This is very important because it shows that the, uh, um, the program of dislocative nationalism is very different from that of the modernists. The modernists actually wanted to reform the state. Dislocative nationalists uh, don't have much to say about the state. Uh, you know, their program of reform hardly goes beyond the elimination of Arabic loanwords and the elimination of Islam. Because in their beliefs, if Iranians are returned to their racial purity, then bam, overnight, Iran will become a great nation again. And this is really what differentiates this thought from modernism. I mentioned earlier that, moder that modernism was pragmatic. Dislocative nationalism is not pragmatic, it's historicist. All he does is to provide this narrative, which is very convenient, very comfortable. You know, we were a great nation, so we are inherently great. But then, you know, the Arabs came, it's their fault, etc. This narrative that you find time and again, including in today's Iran, to explain uh, history. And then the third dimension to this, uh, of course, is uh, the European dimension. You have this chapter called Europe that feared yet admired idol. Um, this, you know, it's a series of beliefs, you know, this belief that, that Iran is somehow a European country that's just been kind of misplaced, uh, these attempts to emulate Europe, this importing of European kind of racialized ideas. Can you tell us a bit more about that as well? Yes. Yeah, so, um, I believe that dislocative nationalism is very unique in many ways. Of course, it displays a lot of similarities with other, uh, uh nationalisms, but what primarily differentiates it with, uh, the more the, the nationalism of Iran's neighbors, be it uh, uh, Indian nationalism or Arab nationalism, is the fact that it is not uh, it was not born out of an anti-colonial struggle, um, because Iran was never formally colonized, although, although uh, there was a great deal of uh, imperial interference in Iranian affairs. And as I mentioned earlier, the first. Uh, utterances of dislocative nationalist ideas, in the case of Ahunzadeh, came from someone who was serving an imperial state that had gone to war with Iran. His first boss uh, was uh, uh, no other than Paskevich. Paskevich is the chap who signed a humiliating treaty with Iran, stripping Iran of large chunks of the Caucasus. Um, so he has no problem, in fact, with European modernity. If anything, he think, if anything, he believes that Iran must become uh, completely fully uh, Europeanized in order to go back to its uh, Aryan roots. See, this is this is what's interesting about it. And my claim here is that uh, dislocative nationalism, because of its uh, ideological content was uh, doomed, if you will, to repress the rights of Iranians. In other terms, that dislocative nationalism can possibly not, or the, 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 the project, the, national, the dislo dislocative project can possibly not fit into a, say, democratic or semi-democratic state that would uh, even remotely respect the uh, civil rights of uh, uh, its citizens. Uh, and the reason is the following. Dislocative nationalism has identified practically all the religious, linguistic, cultural, and uh, 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 
practices of Iranians as the remnants of the racial other, the, uh, the Arabs. And so they have singled out all these religious, linguistic, and cultural practices for elimination. How can you repress the religious, linguistic, cultural, and uh, practices of the inhabitants of a land while at the same time respecting their rights? It's, it's a contradiction in terms. And that, for me, explains a number of early Pahlavi practices, uh, such as the uh, ban on the external manifestations of Shia Islam, for instance, for a few years. Uh, you know, everything that you uh, associate with Shia Islam the uh, commemoration of uh, Imam Hussein, the, the, the Tazir passion play, the Muharram chest beating, all of these things were banned. All of these things were banned. Women were forcibly unveiled, uh, violently unveiled, I should perhaps uh, uh, stress, in the sense that if uh, women between 1936 and 1941, veiled women were forcibly unveiled on the streets by, uh, by the police, uh, and their veil were, were, veils were often in public torn apart, uh, torn, torn off. And uh, they would also be hurled insults at and sometimes uh, imprisoned. Um, and, and, and these, these uh, uh, rather authoritarian and even despotic uh, uh, policies that came down from the king in, in the form of decrees uh, cannot be fully explained if you don't, if you don't understand dislocative nationalism. And, and the, the program of uh, return to pre-Islamic Iran that dislocative nationalism devises. Dislocative nationalism believes that if you force them to unveil, if you force them to wear European suits and wear Pahlavi hats, if you don't allow them to practice Islam, and if you replace the... Uh, Arabic loan words in their language by made up new words or ancient Persian words or, or, or et cetera, et cetera, then all of a sudden, bam, the country will, will go back to its, to its former grandeur and, and, and glory. And then you have this um, discussion of uh, Aryanism and dislocation, uh, where you talk about the spread of kind of Aryanist ideology in Iran. I mean, I think we've already touched a fair amount on this, but if there's, I mean, what else, can you sort of say a bit more about that? I mean, sort of, how this begins to develop in the 1920s and 30s. Yes, absolutely. So we, we've, we've said a, a great deal about it uh, uh, already. So I, I will just say that, um, then again, this is, this is an idea that emerges in, in uh, European scholarship, uh, the discovery of the Indo-European family of languages in the 18th century, which then in the 19th century becomes confused with, with, uh, with will become racialized. So the speakers of the Indo-European languages come to be seen as the members of a race that comes to be referred to as the Aryan race. And similarly, the speakers of Semitic languages, uh, uh, mainly uh, uh, in the European imagination, their internal others, the Jews, and their external others, the Arabs, and by extension, the Muslims, come to be seen as, as the Semite, uh, the, the, the Semitic other. This idea is uh, 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 hybrid, well, adopted and then adapted by uh, dislocative nationalists for many reasons. The first is that you know it's it's very flattering. So you know you are struggling, or the modernists in the nineteenth century are struggling with European power, and how can we catch up with them? And then you have a few you know European scholars that come and shake your hands, and they tell you, hey, by the way, you know you're a member of the same race as, as us. So obviously, exactly. And so um, this was very flattering. Uh, and Akhunzadeh, uh, and particularly Kermani, fell under the spell of this idea, which uh, allowed them not only to salvage the honor of pre-Islamic Iran, but also to some extent to appropriate the achievements of, of modern Europe as somehow ours. Um, and here I have to emphasize that this idea is hybridized because none of the uh, racial thinkers, the European racial thinkers of the 19th century, none of the prominent ones, certainly not Gobineau, certainly not Ernest Renan and others, ever considered Iranians as fully-fledged Aryans. If anything, Iranians were a debased variety, uh, in Gobineau's words, under heavy Semitic uh, influence. 
and there was there was nothing to do to savage them. Uh, you know, Go, if Gobineau was alive in the 1920s, he would have thought that the policies of the Pahlavi state were a waste of time. That Iran cannot be returned to its uh, racial purity. It's too late in many ways. Uh, Iran is doomed. Um, so this is one aspect of European Arianist thought that dislocative nationalists consciously decided to sweep under the rug, uh, obviously. And then uh, Arianism plays a very important role in uh, dislocative nationalism because precisely because that idea of dislocation, dislodging Iran from its reality in the Middle East and presenting it as some lost member of the European nations, this only becomes possible with the help of the Aryan race hypothesis. Only when you start to see Iran as an Aryan nation can you make that claim. And then you can go on, as Mohammad Reza Shah, the last Shah of Iran, uh, Pahlavi once said, uh, that uh, uh, then you can go on and claim that Iran's situation, uh, location in the Middle East, is a mere accident of geography. So this uh, this fascinating process of uh, dislocation, which is uh, you know factually very obviously problematic and entirely imaginary, is only possible thanks to the Aryan race hypothesis. Hence, the importance, the centrality of the Aryan race hypothesis to dislocative nationalism. Again, down to this day, it's still a very very lively uh, form of uh, identity politics in Iran. Sure is, yeah, and in, and and you mentioned uh, Mohammad Reza Shah, uh, uh, Pahlavi, the last Shah of Iran, the last King of Iran, um, and that's actually a great transition to. I think the portion of this book that a lot of people are going to be particularly interested in, which is the sort of the instrumentalization of some of these ideas by the Iranian state over the course of the twentieth century by the Pahlavi state. Uh, you have these last two chapters of your book, the road to officialdom and triumph, where you talk about the process uh, of how this happens. Um, can you tell us a bit more about uh, about this, about how that process takes place, how dislocative nationalism becomes, in effect, kind of official Pahlavi ideology from the sort of 1920s to the 1970s? Yes. So if we go back to 1900, all we have are the texts of Akhunzadeh and Kermani, and they have not really caught on by 1900. Uh, modernism is still flavor of the day and uh, Iranians are bracing themselves where they don't know it, but we know it in retrospect, for the constitutional revolution. The constitutional revolution is the culmination of modernist thought. It's the culmination this is of the, this the constitutional revolution of 1906. Exactly. It goes on for a for a few years, it brings about a constitution, a modern, uh, you could claim a, a modern state, a modern parliament, etc., with ups and downs, with ebbs and flows. Um, unfortunately, for many reasons that it would be too, uh, that uh, you know, we should not get into uh, here, now and today, but the uh, constitutional revolution largely fails again. And Iran, as a territorial state, almost implodes in the, in the 20th century. So um, it is only uh, when modernist ideas of state reform and constitutionalism are discredit uh, discredited in the minds of the uh, intellectuals that starting in the 1910s, uh, you, you start to see dislocative ideas be ex expressed in the newspapers and, uh, and uh, uh, pamphlets that appear. And uh, when the Pahlavi state emerges, you, you know, the, the way I see this, for those who are familiar with the uh, theories of nationalism, you can see this, this passage from constitutionalism to the Pahlavi state as a passage, a transition from a civic form of nationalism to an ethnic form of nationalism. The civic form of nationalism uh, being constitutionalism, so, you know, uh, an open nation, uh, you know, the closest uh, examples would be uh, Britain or the French Republic or the United States. Uh, anyone can become a member of uh, the, 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 the national <clears throat> community for as long as you pay loyalty to the state and its institutions and its legislation. 
Um, and I believe that constitutionalism held this promise. But then you have the ethnic form of nationalism, which is dislocative nationalism, the nationalism of the Pahlavis that emerges as, uh, as a response to the failure of civic nationalism. So here it's a nationalism that is exemplified by Germany until recently and many East European countries, where the national group is closed. You are either an ethnic national or you aren't an ethnic national. Um, and um, so uh, in, in a long process of learning, the king, uh, Reza Shah, becomes uh, a convert to dislocative nationalism. And that's why uh, dislocative nationalism becomes part of the official ideologies, uh, obviously because there wasn't only one and you could hardly rule with dislocative nationalism alone, part of the official ideologies of the modern nation state of Iran. And the, this, is, this explains the, the, the success and the stability of dislocative nationalism because a modern state that could reach, you know, the further reaches, the farther reaches, the farthest reaches of its territory hammered this ideology into the brains or drilled, uh, sorry, this ideology into the brains of uh, its population through uh, mass schooling, the national curriculum, uh, propaganda, uh, 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 and a repertoire of, uh, of symbols. And you have a number of non-state actors, particularly intellectuals, such as, for instance, Hoveida, uh, who is our greatest uh, uh, novelist and author, I think, uh, uh, by, by far, but who uh, promoted the ideas of dislocative nationalism. And you also have a number of what I call pseudo-historians, such as uh, Zarin Kub, uh, Abdul Karim Zarin Kub, with his famous 1957 book, Two Centuries of Silence, that further promoted these ideas into, into society. Do you want me to say more about the Pahlavi state? or We're probably running a little short on time, so um, we'll, we'll tempt readers with, uh, with perhaps what they're missing here. Um, the book ends on a slightly pessimistic note, um, right? You talk about the sort of uh, the failure of dislocative nationalism. Can you tell us a bit more about yeah, that? Yeah, so... Um... One, so, you know, beyond the personal stances, uh, uh, the personal position that I have against, you know, racial thought and, and forms of racial hatred, which make me reject dislocative nationalism, I simply believe that dislocative nationalism has failed to bring about the millennium as was promised by uh, the people who have subscribed to it. The claim that is often made is that this is a very diverse uh, and, in some uh, respects, unstable land, and you needed something to hold it together. I do believe that this is a false claim. I do not believe that dislocative nationalism, with its centralizing and Persianizing um, uh, um, uh, instincts, has helped uh, uh, keep the country together. If anything, I believe large sections of the society have been very much alienated uh, from the central state, I'm particularly referring to the, to the uh, peripheries of the Iranian nation, the ethnic peripheries, the religious, uh, not the religious peripheries, but particularly the ethnic peri uh, peripheries uh, that have been alienated by uh, uh, the Pahlavi state and the dislocative and dislocative uh, nationalism. I doubt that this is what's going to uh, uh, keep uh, Iran together in the future. What Iran, in my view, needs, this in my, but this is my humble view, and I do realize that it's uh, probably very idealistic, uh, and uh, I don't know of many people who same along, uh, think along the same lines, is um, a, a new sort of, uh, a novel sort of uh, uh, civic, civic nationalism. You know, a civic nationalism to which any member, any inhabitant of the Iranian plateau can uh, belong to, you know, regardless, irrespective of religion or ethnicity or language or status or gender, because the, this state and its institutions are legitimate uh, and perceived as legitimate by majority of the population. Um, 
the reason why I'm slightly pessimistic is that I do not see how the under present circumstances who how this could uh, uh, come about. Uh, in my view, the Islamic Republic, to a large extent, has retrieved uh, aspects of dislocative nationalism. The uh, attitude of the state uh, towards the uh, ethnic minorities is uh, is testimony to, to 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 the continuity from before seventy nine to after seventy nine, uh, and. Um, and uh, yeah. just so we're clear, in, in case people aren't sort of familiar with some of Iran's ethnic makeup, and we're talking about in particular sort of Arab minorities, Baluchis, Kurds, Armenians, etc., who would not fit into this. Um, this yes, kind of framework, and we are not. Right? I mean, uh, uh, so you know, there are no, there are no, there is no data on on minorities in Iran, which is of course a, a, a big problem for us uh, researchers. But Persian speakers, the Persian speaker. Uh, majority uh, is, according to some scholars, uh, uh, in fact, a minority. Uh, it's anywhere between. Well, I mean, it's about half the population. Let's put that. The, the, it's put at, at anywhere between forty-five and fifty-five to sixty percent of the population. Uh, the Azeris, that are the largest minority, and uh, let us bear in mind that Akhunzadeh and many dislocative nationalists hailed from. Uh, its ranks uh, represent anything between 25 and 35 percent of the population. So we are not talking about small minorities. We are talking about very sizable constituencies of the modern uh, uh, Iranian nation states. Um, and so I'm just curious, you know, what the reaction has been um, from Iranians who have read your book. I'm thinking, especially, sort of Iranian uh, exile community. Uh, Iranians in the diaspora. <laughs> I imagine you probably get into some fairly heated conversations because I'm I'm picturing this, what you're the argument you're making as being actually very upsetting and traumatizing to people who have grown up uh, very much believing everything that you're dismantling and taking apart. Uh, I mean, I'm, you have some great lines in the beginning in the introduction about, you know, and it reminds me of just how many you know, anyone who's ever been to Iranian businesses, to travel agencies, to restaurants, to to anything, you know, the, the sheer number, and in, in Iran as well, as well as abroad, businesses that are named, you know, Arya uh, or Persepolis or, or what have you, right? I mean, this is such a cherished part for a particular generation, I think, especially of Iranians. And I'm I'm just curious, you know, what the reception has has been as you've talked about the book to to, to some of these communities. So within the scholarly community, uh, I was very pleased to see that the book was uh, well-received. There was a sense that these ideas needed to be explained. And let us not forget that we are sl- slightly behind. So you know, we, we like to think of ourselves as better than our neighbors, but Turks and uh, uh, Turkish nationalism and Arab nationalism have been extensively studied since the 60s and 70s, whereas uh, we are just we are just starting, you know. So we, we're very very behind, and so there was there is there was a sense that there was a gap that needed to be addressed, and I'm very pleased to say that most reviews, most not all of them, have been uh, positive. I hope that I deserve uh, uh, them. Um, as far as the uh, non-academic public is uh, concerned, w- well, I do occasionally receive, of course, the uh, the odd email of insults, um, and uh, there are websites that are being disparaged. Um, but uh, you know that was to be expected, as you say. It's very, it's very, uh, uh, you know, uh, upsetting. I'm sure for some people who like to believe themselves uh, as good as Germans, and now they realize that they are not uh, Germans. Uh, but you know, so be it. And I don't see any way, any reason why I should sugarcoat uh, uh, my uh, ideas. Um, Unfortunately, a lot of a lot of this is is polemics. It's polemical, right? So you know, typically the sort of comments that I will uh, get at the bottom of uh, uh, the pages where my name appears, not the scholarly articles, but sort of like the, the, the op-eds and the interviews, are polemical, and the attacks are ad hominem. You know, I mean, it, it rarely goes beyond, oh, uh, Zia Brahimi is uh, is an agent of the Islamic Republic and a British spy all at the same time, which is quite fascinating. Yes. So, uh, um, yeah. So uh, um, now it's going to be interesting to see the reaction of the readership in Iran itself. There is a, a uh, official translation 
of the book that is uh, uh, in the pipeline and uh, a few interviews in in uh, journals and, and newspapers. So let's see let's see where it goes. But clearly, dislocative nationalists are no friends of mine. Uh, there are always a couple at uh, any talks any talk I give. They always ask the same questions. They always come up with the same accusations. And, you know, so be it. <laughs> That's how you know you're doing something important. Um, well, Reza, we've taken up a lot of your time today. I really appreciate it. But so just one sort of final question. What are you working on next? I'm working on something that uh, most people would see as completely different, which is an entangled history of anti-Semitism and Islamophobia in modern Europe. Not, not in 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 Iran, uh, with a particular emphasis on conspiracy theories, uh, and and whether conspiracy theories play a central role in uh, in anti-Semitism and Islamophobia, and, and and I I try to argue that yes, they do. Um, so in a way, it's different because I'm not working on Iran at the moment, but um, there is clearly a link. In fact, my interest in the subject was. Um, uh, uh, was uh, I mean, my interest started when I was researching the European Orientalist templates of dislocative nationalism. When I was reading uh, uh, large ch- chunks of text from Gobineau or Ernest Renan, etc. Uh, uh, so I'm going back to the same templates. I'm going back to the same sources but uh, to study them for uh, a completely different purpose. Uh, once this project has been uh, finalized, hopefully in a few years, and it will come out hopefully in, the, in, the, in, a, in, in book form, uh, I hope to go back, if you will, to Iran and uh, perhaps look into anti-Semitism in Iran, which is a, a topic that I would like to uh, look into more closely. Well, it sounds fascinating. I know a lot of people will be looking forward to all of that work. Um, great. Well, thank you very, very much for being with us. Uh, again, I've been talking today to Reza Zia Ebrahimi. Uh, he's the author of a new book, a fascinating new book, The Emergence of Iranian Nationalism, Race and the Politics of Dislocation, published by Columbia University Press. Reza Zia Ebrahimi, thank you very much for joining us on the program today. Thank you very much, John.